A great diet, sharp tongue and wedding shenanigans which seem like drunken reality show pitches. Join me as I talk about Spartan women in part two of my Spartan Women podcast. What have the Romans ever done for us? Hello and thanks for downloading the Ancient History Hound podcast. My name's Neil and you can find all of the stuff I get up to on ancientblogger.com. There's links to my articles on there, Instagram, Facebook and YouTube. Naturally, I'm also on Twitter, at Ancient Blogger. So come and say hello. I'm going to assume that you've listened to part one and that you're back for more punishment. If you haven't, it's not essential but some of the content references or is informed by part one, where I looked at what life might have been like for a Spartan girl up to her late teens. I also want to quickly add that my next podcast won't drop until the end of June or early July. This is due to various commitments in the upcoming weeks, which even includes a holiday. On a personal note, I'd love to podcast more often, but life gets in the way, particularly when you have a full-time job. As I'm always telling you, I've got a website as well, and I don't want to neglect that. In any case, I've got a good few podcasts up now, so feel free to check out the back catalogue. In part two, I'll be looking at marriage and motherhood. As we'll see, these were two experiences an adult Spartan woman was expected to have. I don't want to restrict myself to this alone, so I'll also be looking at other areas. Religion, for example, this was still accessed by Spartan women. Part one ended with a young Spartan woman in her late teens. She'd seen a lot by then, and you could argue that this had been in preparation for what was to come. I'm going to also add the caveat that women might marry at later points in their life. However, I'll proceed with the assumption that we have a Spartan who is now around her late teens. In what seems an unusual practice, a Spartan wouldn't marry until she was around 18 to 20. This sits in stark contrast with her Athenian counterpart, who might marry at 14 or 15. The obvious question is why? Why the difference in age? And there have been some attempts to try and answer this. It's possible that Sparta preferred the brides to be that little bit older so they could be more independent and well-versed in running a household. Added to this, it was felt that a woman was in her prime around this point in her life, particularly in the context of carrying a child and giving birth. Earlier I mentioned how Spartan girls were trained and educated in the arts, but it would seem impossible for them to manage more complex arrangements, such as overseeing a kleros, without having a training in all that this might encompass. We're not talking about mere logistics here. You'd need to manage the helots and gain a sound appreciation of agricultural practices, or at least understand the basics. And that's not to say all Spartan women were able farmers, and I'm very wary of making such a bold, sweeping generalisation. But the lack of a market for specialised domestic support in Sparta might have forced Spartan women to understand aspects of the household, and by extension the kleros, that in other Greek polis you would need or you could get a specialised slave for. As I've pointed out, helots differed from slaves. They were the property of the state and assigned to the kleros. So there wasn't the option to just pop out and buy a slave who could fulfil a particular role in the household or outside of it. It's likely that helots were capable farmers. After all, they'd been fulfilling this function for generations by the time of the classical period. 
but as I said in part one, they also supported the infantry on campaign. I could easily posit a scenario where a Spartan woman lost her main agricultural expert or experts this way and had to improvise. Possibly she might be able to borrow a helot from a friend, but as mentioned, there was no specialised market she could dip into. Extending this scenario further, it may have been that a Spartan teenager had a schooling of sorts in the various aspects of the household and kleros, which she might up having to take direct control of. And given what we know of her upbringing, this almost feels like a logical step. After all, she'd been involved in festivals and in the public sphere, so this was nothing new in terms of stepping into a role where she had responsibility or being seen to take control. We might then consider a Spartan of 18 years as a well-rounded individual, certainly in contrast with other Greek citizen women of the time. She would have been physically fit, educated to a level, and understood the social structures of her society very well. This put her in good stead for the next step, marriage. The standard age given for the Spartan groom was 30. After all, this is when Spartan men became citizens. But it's probable that men in their 20s married as well, though I'm unsure how this syncs with what would have been their non-citizen status. Perhaps it didn't really matter if he was on track to citizenship in a few years. As with many aspects of antiquity, we have to assume a variety of possibilities. And this would of course include older men you had to remarry due to some reason. The Spartan wedding ceremony, from what we are told and what we can deduce, was an odd one. A really, really odd one. But that's me with my 21st century viewpoint, and not one which has been normalised by existing within the Spartan society. Plutarch is a main resource for marriage when recounting his life of Lycurgus. According to him, men married the girls by kidnapping them not when they were small and immature, but when they had reached their full prime. Once the girl had been kidnapped, a so-called bridesmaid cropped her hair close to her head, clothed her in a man's cloak and sandals, and left her lying on a pallet in the dark. The bridegroom, not drunk or debauched, but sober, and after having dined as usual at the common table, came in and undid her belt and carried her off to the marriage bed. After spending a short time with his wife, he went off in a dignified way to his usual quarters in order to sleep with the other young men. He kept on doing like this from then on. He would spend his days and sleep at night with his comrades, go to his wife secretly and cautiously because he was ashamed and afraid that someone would discover him in her room. And meanwhile, his wife was devising and planning with him how they might devise opportunities for secret meetings. They carried on like this for some time. So long that some of them had children before they saw their wives in the daylight. Plutarch's account is really quite something. And as Pomeroy points out, the cutting of the hair and the secrecy of the marriage aren't mentioned by Xenophon, who was writing much closer to the classical period. Either these were later customs, as Plutarch was writing in the first century AD, or ones not mentioned by him. Xenophon does, however, comment that it was made shameful for a husband to be seen visiting his wife. The reason for this was that if you prevented continual access, you'd ensure that when the couple did meet up, they, well, well, you can work out the rest. And this would hopefully lead to the pitter-patter of tiny male Spartan feet. Hermippus, writing in the 3rd century BCE, 
So again, a nicely placed source, chronologically speaking, was credited with adding some more detail to all of this. The wedding, or abduction, could involve a group of men and women being shut in a dark room. Whichever maiden a man grabbed would be his wife, albeit one without a dowry. It's plausible that this type of ceremony involved the poorer class of Spartan citizens, given the comment that the women had no dowry. It also hints at marriage being undertaken en masse. Though largely speculative, it could be that the richer Spartans had a pre-arranged marriage to keep the elite families well connected. And this carried with it the elements with which both Plutarch and Xenophon note. For the poorer lot, well, it was a sort of blind man's bluff meets supermarket sweep. We find Hemippus' account referenced in a much later Athenaeus, and Athenaeus also mentions another Greek who was writing at a similar time as Hemippus. He is Clearchus of Soli, and he had written that, in Lacedaemon, the women, on a certain festival, drag the unmarried men to an altar, and then thrash them, in order that, for the purposes of avoiding the insult of such treatment, they may become more affectionate, and in due season, may turn their thoughts to marriage. I know that bachelors in Sparta were looked down upon, I just didn't know that they were also beaten up. Going back to Plutarch's account, the grabbing of a bride fits within a wider practice in Greece, whereby a partner plays the abducted in a symbolic context. Abduction was a common theme in Greek myth. Zeus abducted a fair amount of mortals, and so did Eos, the goddess of dawn. In Crete, there was an abduction ritual between men. If a younger man, say in his late teens, became the love interest of an older man, he would approach the younger man's friends. They would be told that he intended to abduct their friend. The group of friends would then decide if this man was up to the mark or worthy. But let's say he was. The friends would then arrange for the man to bump into them and the love interest. A pretend struggle would commence between the group of friends and the man before he took the younger man he fancied away with him. The initial place they'd go to would be the older man's mess or barracks. And at this point you might be thinking of the Sicitia, which I spoke about in part one and this would be a completely fair connection to make, as we'll see. Once gifts had been given, the two would go away together. They would then return and a feast would be had where the younger man would publicly declare if he accepted the man in, his, in this form of relationship. We don't know if a red rose was part of this, but why not? You might wonder how this connects with Sparta, and you'd be perfectly correct in thinking that, well... There was a strong link between Crete and Sparta in terms of its institutions. Scholars have pointed to Sparta and the Lycurgian reforms as being sourced from Crete. The young men of Crete were grouped together in herds and underwent military training together, which is a similarity, and they also seem to have lived in communal barracks. In short, the two cultures overlap in a number of ways and share similar practices, which may echo in the context we're talking about now, namely of marriage. Perhaps in some way, then, the abduction part of the marriage ceremony was part of a wider practice amongst men and women for different types of relationship status. Next is what seems to be transvesticism. The bride is dressed as a man. In part one, I commented about the exomis, which was a revealing outfit worn by young women running in a race. If this was run by young girls about to be married, then this outfit 
might form part of a trend for women approaching marriage or marriage age to start adopting male clothing. It would seem absurd if this part of the wedding didn't have scholars try and understand it further. Some reason that the shaved head and male outfit made the bride more alluring to the groom, whose intimate experiences would have been largely made with other men. Now, I don't see how this works exactly, and I'm spared going into specific details by a comment which Plutarch makes. Namely, this happened in the dark. If so, then it makes a visual disguise redundant. Another argument I read pushes the motif of transvestism away from the groom's literal male gaze and suggests that this was the bride cementing her status further within the society, and the form this took was adopting male clothing and appearance for a short time. It could be that the exomis was the subtle start of this, and was fully realised with the outfit and shaved head on the wedding night. This argument has the advantage of considering the unusual attire as something purely ritual and symbolic. It wasn't for the purposes of the groom, rather, it was an outfit specific to a rite of passage that a woman wore as part of her movement into the realm of motherhood-to-be, which was ultimately how the Spartan state saw her, or expected her to be. The men had their own versions of this with the agoge, and this was even extended to their hair. Men who passed the agoge could finally grow it long. Perhaps we could understand that a woman nearing the time to marry, and in the ceremony itself, took on the accoutrements associated with men and the rites of passage which they had gone through. But once married, a Spartan woman was expected to have babies. To facilitate this was a practice which has been termed wife-sharing or plural marriage or polygamy, where a wife might have more than one husband or partner. Xenophon referred to older husbands inviting a younger Spartan to have relations with his wife so that she would bear children. Xenophon then commented that children born from this union would belong to the oikos or the household of the older husband. This practice had another variation where a husband could be approached by another Spartan for the same purpose. In this instance, it seems that paternity would be granted to the non-husband. Perhaps this was also a way of non-married men also having kids. This polyandry, plural marriage, or whatever term you seek, is a good example of how the state saw the respective agents involved in this. As an overall comment, it continued the avoidance of strong family units being formed. The Spartan state didn't want rival loyalties, which might occur if you had defined families and defined family structures. As for the Spartan women, her role was to have children, simple as that, and as long as the father was a Spartan citizen, little else mattered. Spartan men could sire children with non-Spartans. Often there'd be helots, and these formed a subclass of Spartans called Mathakes. There's also a tale of Spartan women having children with non-Spartan citizens, particularly at times of war. In one foundation myth, when the Spartan army returned, these were then sent out, and they went and formed a colony on the south boot of Italy called Tarentum. Exactly when this practice came into being isn't clear. Xenophon is the first who mentions it, and he's writing in the early 4th century BCE. As such, whether it was traditionally anything Spartan is difficult to know, and though Plutarch ascribes it to Lycurgus, we need to appreciate whether this was just another thing retrospectively added to the near-mythical character, as with so many other supposedly 
traditional Spartan things. The reasoning for such an arrangement is normally laid at the feet of the continual problem Sparta had, that is, shortage of citizen males. And this became an increasing problem throughout the 5th and 4th centuries BCE. If we thought that this marital arrangement seems unusual, imagine how the Athenians saw it. And I say this because in part one, I cited an excerpt from Andromache, where Hermione, as a Spartan girl, is described in harsh terms. In Athens, you could be punished for adultery, and fear of not being the legitimate father was an incredibly sensitive subject. In Sparta, there was no law against adultery. It's a quite stunning contrast between two peoples who shared many cultural values. And this sort of behaviour added to the Spartan reputation as what Professor Edith Hall described as the other. That is to say, something non-Greek. There's always the whiff of the Spartans being a bit un-Greek. It's important we understand this. Much of what we have reported about the Spartans is from non-Spartan sources, and there's often a hefty serving of bias to accompany fact. This didn't always take a pejorative form. It could be jovial, and there is a fantastic example of this in Aristophanes' play Lysistrata. In this, the women of Greece take a stand to stop the ongoing Peneloplesian War, and it dates to 411 BCE. The female characters come from all over Greece. The Spartan character is named Lampito, and described by Lysistrata as having rippling muscles, beauty, and a healthy colour. Lampito even goes further to describe her proficiency at the jumping dance I mentioned in part one called the Bibasis. This picture matches what we might expect of a Spartan woman. She was athletic and sporting. She had a tan from her outdoor activities. And we know this wasn't seen in Athens as a particularly positive thing. Noble and decent women in Athens wouldn't be tanned because they spent their time indoors. Lampito was the stereotypical Spartan woman seen through Athenian eyes. And even with the tongue-in-cheek comment about a tan, she's not presented in a particularly damning term or way. In particular, her physical prowess is underlined, and you can imagine this being captured in the performance of the play through big manly strides and the odd padded muscle or two. We know women kept fit in Sparta, and we know that Spartans link physical condition to fertility. It's not much of a surprise that Spartan women had a good diet, and if anything, one better than their male counterparts. Pomeroy calculated that the women received a ration of one-half choinxes of barley a day. Apologies for pronunciation. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It's C-H-O-I-N-X. I'm assuming that's how it is pronounced. This is around 0.8 kilograms. Extending our calculations further, Pomeroy estimated that this amounts to 3,416 calories daily, which is a large amount for the time, and really, even today. Remember that this was just barley. It didn't account for any other foodstuffs grown on the kleros that might be accessed. It's not known exactly at what age this ration was made available to a Spartan. I doubt if this would have been given to her as a young girl or even a young woman. It would have made sense that this was made available to her when she was married and looking to start a family. Spartan women had another bonus to their health. Their dress code was basic, which extended to a ban on jewellery and makeup. And this might not seem particularly beneficial until you realise that makeup at this point often contained toxic components. Possibly the most common was white lead used to lighten the complexion. Now, culturally, the Spartans saw no need to lighten their skin. 
because this didn't have any negative connotations. However, it also meant there was nothing used on the face and body, which might have negative effects. It wasn't just how they looked which marked them as different. Though Spartan women didn't have political power, they did have the right to inherit and effectively own their own property. In the absence of any brothers, a woman could inherit the kleros, and where she did have siblings, this didn't prevent her inheritance, it merely restricted the amount she received. The control on this from a state perspective was that the marriage was normally arranged, certainly so with regards to the higher status or elite families. Therefore, any land could be moved from husband to husband, but it was nowhere near as was the case in Athens, where women were just a conduit through which men transferred their wealth. In the 4th century BCE and later, Spartan women became notable land owners, which, as you might imagine, didn't go down too well. Spartan women weren't just mothers, but it's obvious by now they were primarily focused on this role. There was still plenty of involvement socially, they exercised publicly, and continued to engage in religious festivals, not only participating, but overseeing. For example, it was a priestess who oversaw the whipping of the boys at the cheese-stealing event I mentioned in part one, and if that's not a reason to listen to part one, I don't know what is. Women reinforced the social code and values of Sparta throughout their life. As a girl, they might have sung in the chorus which lambasted or praised the boys. And as an adult, they could also do in a way which became famous. Spartan mothers were really quite something. Plutarch recorded the sayings of Spartan mothers. And the one you might have heard of goes along the lines of a Spartan mother telling her son to come back on his shield or with it. And as an aside, this wasn't technically correct, as Spartans were buried where they died, but in any case, you get the message. The sayings recorded fall into the category of extreme tough love. One son returned home, and as he approached, he told his mother that the rest of his colleagues had been killed. How did his mum react? Well, she picked up a tile and killed him with it, quipping, Then why did they send you to bring us the bad news? Another mother was confronted with two sons who'd fled a battle. She raised her tunic and then asked them to crawl back in. One quote was attributed to Gorgo, daughter of Cleomenes, which dates her to the turn of the 5th century BCE. She was asked why Spartan women were the only ones to rule over men. Her response? Well, only Spartan women give birth to men. Finally, there's the story of Pausanias, a Spartan general who was thought to be in league with the Persians. Though it was never proven, he escaped arrest by seeking sanctuary in a temple. And in case you didn't know, it was considered sacrilege to remove someone in this situation. You couldn't simply drag him out. Think of modern-day embassies, if that's not too topical. Pausanias' mother came up with a novel solution. She walked up to the entrance and put down a single brick. This is a cue to the temple being bricked up and turned into a tomb. That said... Had he died in the temple, this would have been considered really quite bad, indeed sacrilege. So perhaps he was removed from it when unconscious or close to death. But either way, it's another Spartan woman expressing the cultural norms. And this became a criticism levelled at Sparta, that the women had way too much involvement. Aristotle, right in the mid-4th century BCE, was quite adamant that this was the case when he asked, what's the difference between the women ruling and the rulers being ruled by women. 
And if you studied first century AD Roman politics, you'll recognise this as an insult flung at many an emperor. This question sits somewhat outside of the scope of what I've been discussing, as it related to the influence women elite families were said to have. The political landscape in ancient Greece was febrile and constantly shifting, yet in the 4th century BCE certain factors came to uproot much of what had been traditional Sparta. For example, the victory over Athens, spoiler alert there, had seen wealth pour into it, and the Spartan way of life had no real way of processing this. One of the ironies had been that though Spartan women had been pseudo-landowners, they had no real way of facilitating their asset. They couldn't buy jewellery, couldn't buy slaves, or really any kind of luxuries. This changed, and elite women started to move in the traditional male space of economic visibility itself, a bit of a rarity in Sparta. And a good example of this was chariot racing. The chariot race at Olympia has been compared to modern-day Formula One in the context of extreme cost and big status appeal. In the 5th century BC, Sparta had sent teams there and won several times. But in 396 BC and 392 BC, Kainiska, a sister to King Agesilaos, sent teams which won. This was a first, and Kainiska wasn't exactly backwards in celebrating. Monuments were erected both at Olympia and back at Sparta, which featured her the horses, the chariot, and even the charioteer. Aristotle's criticism of increasing power and influence of women in Sparta might then be fixed to the developments in the 4th century BCE, as opposed to the period before it. The period I'm looking at is 5th century BCE. So how do I handle Aristotle's comment in this context? And this is one of a number of problems you have when you try and use the sources to understand Spartan women. I am, after all, having a dialogue about women who are rarely afforded a voice anywhere in antiquity. If this mate didn't make things difficult enough, we were dealing with Sparta, a society not known for committing much to writing in the classical period. The task is therefore to scour the sources which are not only non-Spartan, but mostly date to a period after the 5th century BCE. I've been citing Plutarch a fair amount. Plutarch's Life of Lycurgus can be used to structure a narrative of how Sparta developed and created its institutions. Yet it's also responsible for what I've seen called the Spartan Mirage, which is a depiction of Sparta that's often contradicted by itself and by other types of evidence, such as the archaeological. Despite all of this, it's possible to construct a sketch of what Spartan women might have experienced in the 5th century BCE, and it's useful to contrast this with her counterpart in Athens. Though neither had direct political power, it was deemed far more acceptable for a Spartan to be involved in the public sphere. An Athenian could find herself in charge of the household, which gave her some indirect economic freedom and influence. She could hire slaves and make purchases, even though this might be under the scrutiny of her husband or guardian. In contrast, a Spartan might oversee both the household and the kleros. In theory, this would have afforded her control of the finances, except this concept didn't really track across in the 5th century BCE. In Athens, a woman could make minor financial transactions, even to the extent of selling things. She could also buy clothes, luxuries and accessories. Both were expected to have children. The difficulty for the Athenian family was having too many or too few children. I don't see the latter being too much of a concern for a Spartan, though there was the danger of having to split an inheritance too many ways. In that scenario, a child 
could be adopted into another family. Having children was a dangerous thing to do whichever city-state you came from. There's a great line in Euripides' play Medea, where the eponymous heroine states that she'd rather stand in line, spear in hand, three times over, than give birth once. It's a powerful statement. It compared warfare to childbirth and ranked the latter over the former. A goddess strongly associated with childbirth was Artemis, which is somewhat ironic given that she was a virgin deity. In part one of this podcast, I discussed Artemis Orthia and the associations and engagements women had with it. I also mentioned how a girl and a young woman might access religion and important roles they had. This didn't change, and Spartan women still played their part. The deadly cheese festival at Orthia was overseen by a priestess. It would seem odd if choruses which sang and danced at the religious festivals didn't have adult women. The choruses featuring the girls and young women would be competing against each other, so it's unlikely for them to have contained adult women. Perhaps then there were choruses composed of older or adult women who may have competed against each other or simply put on a show. You'd certainly imagine that adult women would be involved in the rowdier all-night festivals. Boys and young men were continually pressed to emulate their elders in Sparta and be judged by them, and it would be at odds if this wasn't paralleled in some way. Adult women would be those to reinforce the standards and expectations at festivals, they'd guide and pass down the traditions and ensure good practice, as it were, was continued. In a more specific context, we're told by Pausanias that only adult women were allowed into a temple of Dionysus. The location of this isn't clear, but it was near the Taygetus range. Not only that, but all the duties fulfilled there had to be undertaken by women. The relationship women had with religion is, needless to say, seen through the optic of the Spartan state, and here too it monitors and regulates the behaviour. Prior to the big social changes, Jewelry was found at religious sites such as the Spartan Acropolis and the sanctuary of Artemis Orthia. Following the Lycurgian reforms, jewelry was banned, but there were still dedications, often in the form of mirrors and bells. And there was also something, shock horror, something mainstream, woven fabrics. At first you might think, this is obvious, why wouldn't Spartan women weave and dedicate these items? Well... Remember from part one, weaving sat alongside manual craftsmanship as something that the helots or the perioikoi did. A proud Athenian woman might boast about her skills, but not so a Spartan. And just to reinforce this, there was an anecdote from Plutarch's Sayings of Spartan Women where an Ionian woman did just that. She boasted about a luxury item she had woven. A Spartan woman simply brought her four sons in front of her and said that these were something to be proud of. This is a sort of precursor to schoolgate politics. Yet weaving was permitted in the context of religion. Pomeroy points to the weaving paraphernalia and plaques depicting textiles as being found in the sanctuary of Artemis Orthia and dating to the period we're looking at, i.e. 5th century BCE. The wooden statue of Artemis's sanctuary was given a woven headdress and a long dress as well. There is a practical element to all of this. Weaving wasn't that important outside a religious context because in Sparta, you didn't really wear much. And what you did would best be described as functional. There was no market for luxury dresses or high-tech garments, as it were. I'll return to Plutarch for one final comment on Spartan women and religion. 
One translation of Plutarch states how important a role adult women played in religion. You might have heard that the only time a Spartan man was allowed a headstone was if he died in battle. And this was extended to a woman if she died in childbirth. Well, this is contested. It's actually argued that the original translation is if the woman held a sacred office. That is to say, if she was a priestess or similar. In the first podcast on Spartan women, the focus was how girls and young women were indoctrinated into the Spartan culture and what the state had in mind for them. This podcast is, I suppose, the other side of it. Spartan adult women were the regulators. They had access to spaces which their counterparts in Athens would balk at. But this didn't mean freedom. Take the practice of polygamy or wife-sharing or whatever you want to call it. Was this an expression of equality and sexual freedom? Or was it another way of ensuring women would have children? Or was it a mix? Freedom, in fact, might be a quality which doesn't really track when you're considering the Spartan state. Were Spartan men free? After all, they were bound to the conventions of the Spartan society, albeit in a different way. In the 4th century BC, this society started to crumble in the face of practicality. There were just too few male Spartan citizens. The zealous conservatism began to cannibalise its own people. New concepts such as physical wealth and luxury started to drip into Sparta, and the women occupied the places where these started to pull. Sparta's heyday was never stronger than the myth of its heyday. Part of this was the notoriety of its women, perhaps the most standout aspect for the contemporary Greeks elsewhere. Plutarch, who wrote about the sayings of Spartan women, and who I've mentioned earlier, lived from the middle of the 1st century AD to the early part of the 2nd century AD. And if we think about the mythical Spartan heyday as existing in the 5th century BC, for example, that's 500 or so years before Plutarch started to write. Can you imagine a meme or a stereotype we have today existing 500 years from now? Okay, I I realise it's not exactly the same, but it does go to show how the figure of the Spartan woman had traction many, many years later. In Rome, Cicero, Propertius and Virgil all wrote about Spartan women and on themes which seem familiar to us, namely that women wrestled, exercised, sang and weren't hidden away. Propertius even dedicated a poem to a Spartan woman, Book 3, Number 14, in case you wanted to know. He covers the normal agenda or expected agenda of activities, but also mentions how a married woman was able to walk around with a lover and fear no punishment for it. He ends the poem by asking Rome to import this attitude to its women. Perhaps Propertius had an eye on someone married. Just to add, Spartan women didn't just feature in poems and letters. There's even a story of a Spartan woman wrestling a senator. And if you think that's far-fetched, consider that the story is placed when Nero was emperor, which somehow makes it perfectly feasible. And with that, I'll draw this to a close. I hope you've enjoyed both the episodes on Spartan women. As I mentioned at the beginning, I'll hopefully have another podcast for you at the end of June or early July. Till then, keep an eye out for me on Twitter, at Ancient Blogger, and of course my website, ancientblogger.com. Until the next podcast, take care and keep safe.